This episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast is brought to you by the folks at Shout Factory and G-Kids, the U.S. home of the Studio Ghibli catalog. You can save $20 by purchasing the brand new Ghibli six-film collection on Apple TV, which includes The Wind Rises, The Secret World of Arietti, The Cat Returns, Porco Rosso, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and The Castle in the Sky. If physical media is more your thing, you can get any of these films from your favorite online retailers, including the brand new Blu-ray of The Wind Rises. Thank you so much, and please enjoy the episode. the fellow human beings out there welcome back to another episode of third impact anime i'm hosting for once this is tori in case you've forgotten and don't call me a borrower because i'm stealing it and i ain't bringing it back (laughs) i'm joined by some lovely co-hosts if they'd like to introduce themselves hey guys it's austin here and uh, just like in this film you better check under your floor because i might be there and it's me andrew I, too, am three inches tall with, with an irrational fear of humans. And I'm Edwin, where I realize the best kind of people are tic-tac-shaped. <laughs> now, listen, we're, we're, ta- we're talking about Arietti. We're not talking about fall guys. And now we've dated the episode. Yep. That's fine. Almost immediately. Um, anyway, let's do our usual little catch-up, especially since we haven't had Andrew and Edwin on in quite a while. Edwin, how about you go first? What have you been up to? Stuck in the deep abyss. Oh, no. Bless heart. Well, were you doing anything entertaining in the deep abyss, at least? Playing Fall Guys? I mean, it is a really fun game. It's not. I hate the game. I'm so pissed off at it. It's one of those, like, Flappy Bird type things where I think people... People who really love it, love it because it is infuriating, and I am definitely one of those people. It gives you that one more time feel. Uh, just a, <laughs> yeah. And then 30 times later, yeah. you've just, lost five yeah. hours. That's five hours of sleep I lost. So, real quick question, Edwin. How many times have you won? We don't talk about that. <laughs> wow. Because I am a, <coughs> a three-time Fall guys champion. Okay, okay. Here's the thing. After this podcast, I'm gonna grind until I get three wins. I hope you do. We'll never see Edwin again. Mm -hmm. I know. (laughs) All right, Andrew. How about you? Oh man, I've been playing a lot of Final Fantasy 14 since I was last on, which was for what Azumagadayo. How many numbers ago was that? At this point. Oh goodness. I don't know. That was a good bit. That was a good bit ago, I believe. Probably yeah. February, January, yeah. something like that. That sounds mm-hmm. correct. What is time? Mm-hmm. All I know is pre-COVID know. and post-COVID. Yeah, that's the only. Yep. This is the only timeline. Um, but yeah, I've been playing a uh, bunch of Final Fantasy XIV. It's a lot of fun. I didn't think that I would like it as much as I do, but I, but I like it quite a bit. He mm. likes it enough to bother me about it every single day. I, well, I mean, you're welcome. Yes, you don't play. I know. I need to play more than I do, oh. which is mm-hmm. zero. Yeah. Welcome yes. to another episode of Let's Call Out Austin, the podcast. Yeah. It constantly yeah. happens, and I welcome your wrath. 
and I'm on every week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. All right, Austin, how about you? Uh, well, the folks have heard from me quite a bit lately. Um, at the time of this recording, we are just coming off of doing our big 100th episode. Wahoo! And Ooh, so thank yay. you for everybody who helped us celebrate that. It was a lot of fun to get everybody in all those wonderful uh, submissions for people saying congratulations. That was a lot of fun to put together. And of course, just getting to talk about Evangelion, which is like probably next to Cowboy Bebop in terms of my favorite anime ever. Um, so mm -hmm. that was, that was just a great episode all around. So that's really all that I've been doing, but the folks have heard from me, so I don't need to go too into what I've been up to cleaning my room. I guess that's what I'm doing. I mean, same. I haven't been up to a whole lot of much except working and getting back onto my kick of turning off the screen and reading a book. So, that's you know, exciting. Animal Crossing, mm -hmm. Halloween. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. Final Fantasy 14. I guess I will mm -hmm. say, I, I, I've mentioned it off and on on the podcast for what feels like forever, but I finally beat all four Divine Beasts in Breath of the Wild. Wow. <laughs> Yay. Congratulations. Thank you. So now that we've caught up with each other and the listeners, I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to Austin since he has a lot of fascinating information from the making of little snippet that he watched on Arietti. Yeah, so tonight we're going to be talking about the 2010 Studio Ghibli film, The Secret World of Arietti. Um, it is directed not by Hayao Miyazaki and not by Isao Takahata. It was directed by a relatively newcomer to the anime scene at the time uh hiramasa yonabayashi who uh, after he graduated from uh, college he joined studio ghibli pretty early on he was you know probably like most animators in japan very very uh inspired by studio ghibli and he specifically credits whisper of the heart from 1994 as being like what kind of got him into wanting to be an animator and wanting to work in animation and most specifically Studio Ghibli, which I thought was very interesting. It's like he didn't say, you know, Totoro or Nausicaa or Princess Mononoke or something like that. It was like Whisper of the Heart that really that really struck a chord with him to make him want to pursue this career. And um so he started working for Studio Ghibli in, I want to say, the late 90s and the early 2000s uh, as a key animator and a few other odds and ends here and there. Um, one of the scenes that he is most responsible for that you, the listeners, would probably be familiar with is the scene where Hal meets Sophie for the first time in Hal's Moving Castle. And I know mm -hmm. that, you know, Tori, you're a, you're a really big fan of that movie. And like that mm -hmm. particular scene is like, it's one of the ones that always stands out to me. It's the scene where she's running away from the guards, right? And he's like, I've been looking mm -hmm. for you. Okay, that scene, that is a very well-established scene, kind of like you said. And I think it's very, it was very important, I think, to kind of capture all of that emotion there. Because as you go throughout the movie, you figure out, you know, why he's saying that to her. So that setup that he um, brought there visually, I think, um, really kind of helps sell everything else. 
Yeah, and Howl is such like a magical, mysterious character that you want to definitely, you know, introduce him in a way that really conveys that sense of like suave mystery about him where he's like it's like you don't quite know if he's a a good guy or a bad guy but he's so charismatic you kind of instantly fall in love with him sort of character mm-hmm. um when are we doing our howl episode i mean it could happen it could happen <laughs> how's moving podcast um that's a that's a good name for a podcast if somebody wants to take that you can have it for five dollars anyway um <laughs> So yeah, Yonabayashi uh, worked his way up through Studio Ghibli, and um, around the time that Ponyo finished up and was released, they went into production of this film in 2009-2010 or so. And also around that same time, Miyazaki was starting to work on producing The Wind Rises, Um it, he, he started out working on The Wind Rises in, like, manga form. Like, there was a very short manga that he was working on in that time period, which ran in, like, an airplane magazine or something like that, if I recall correctly. So he was working on it even back then. And there was a need for a director who wasn't Takahata and wasn't Miyazaki to helm a film. And Miyazaki and Suzuki were just like, well, we've got Yonabayashi, and he's reasonably competent. Why don't we just make him do it? And he kind of, like, Yonabayashi was very taken off guard by this because he didn't really feel like he was directorial material, which is very interesting. And he had this great quote that I thought was very interesting that he said in the making of documentary for the film. He said, I feel that the director of a film really needs to have an ideology or something to say. And I didn't have that. So I didn't really want to direct the film. And I think that's a very interesting quote that he has that I would like to come back to later whenever we talk to about the film in earnest. Mm-hmm. Um, but originally Miyazaki way back in the sixties or the sixties or seventies, he had pitched doing an adaptation of the borrowers as a tv anime and you know back then he was working on like a lot of the world masterpiece theater stuff like um anne of green gables and like sherlock hound and stuff like that so very much in the vein of this like adaptations of classic children's literature into tv anime but it didn't get picked up for whatever reason i mean there's a similar story with you know nadia the secret of blue water where he originally wanted to do an adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but, you know, it just didn't happen. And then somebody else picked it up later on. And that's kind of the deal here. Like, Miyazaki had always wanted to do The Borrowers, and then they got the chance to do it as a movie. But, you know, scheduling and all that stuff sort of dictated that he couldn't direct it. So that's how Yonabayashi came onto the project. Wasn't he working on The Wind Rises when the opportunity came to make Ariadne? Yeah, he had... He'd, started like i said a moment ago like he had started working on the like the manga for it and was in the early planning stages and the wind rises was a film that well first of all this is very much at the point in miyazaki's career where he gets to do whatever he wants because he's so established so if he wants to take you know 15 years working on the same movie he can do that if he wants you know granted if he stays alive or not but um so that's that's what he was up to, but then they just had this that this gap that needed to be filled. So they found Yonobayashi, who was still very green. Like this is the first film he'd ever directed, um, and they they stuck him on the project. 
fascinatingly enough, the movie is actually based on um, a set of five books by Mary Norton called The Borrowers, which I may or may not have just went and purchased on thrift books while you were talking. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to borrow them from your local library? What did I say before? If I borrow it, I'm not returning it. (laughs) (laughs) So this is based on a set of five novels that started in 1952. It's a children's series uh, written by Mary Norton. She's written plenty of children's books as well on top of the borrowers. Um, But the basic gist is the borrowers are a family of tiny people who live secretly in the walls um, of people's homes. And they take little things that won't be missed like sugar and doll furniture and uh, things like that so they can survive on their own, essentially. Um, It's super cute. I remember reading the book in like second or third grade, somewhere around there, probably third grade. Um, And I really enjoyed it as a kid. So I'm hoping whenever I get my copy and reread it, it actually will be just as enjoyable. Yeah, The Borrowers was always a story that I was very, that I had heard about a lot. Like, I knew of it as, like, you know, this classic children's book, you know, kind of like The Wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland or whatever, just part of that children's book canon. But mm. I had never consumed the story in any form until uh, watching Arietti. No, I'd never even, I'd never even heard of it. Oh, really? Edward, really? Did, you ha- did you have, did you have any familiarity with The Borrowers? Back in the day, you know, with the, VHS tapes that were the commercials and there was the one for the 1997 movie that said based off the book. So did you ever, did you watch that film? Did you, had you seen that or just the trailer? I watched the trailer. Okay. <laughs> so you've not actually so seen the... the movie. You've only seen the trailer. I mean, with most trailers nowadays, you can kind of get the gist of a movie. <laughs> I mean... Okay. That's valid. <laughs> I mean, John Goodman's in it. So, I mean, I'll, I'll probably watch it just because of that. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love him. Um, So now that we have the context of the work and where it came from with the children's books and how, you know, Miyazaki read the book and how we got to the animated film, unfortunately, without John Goodman, um, what's everyone else's background with the film? Edwin, do you want to go first? No. (laughs) Okay, Andrew. Okay, I'll go. Um, I I mean, like, I I hadn't seen the film until watching it for the for this review but uh i remember um kind of back when it was coming out um seeing the uh the the cardboard standees at the movie theater mm. mm-hmm. movie theaters wow what a what an idea <laughs> remember those I remember those but uh magical bygone time yeah um but that that was really the only um the only interaction that I had had with the film beforehand. Like, I don't remember explicitly seeing anything Ariadne-based or themed at conventions, nonsense like that. I, I, don't, I don't remember seeing anything like that. So it's only, like, just, like, very brief images, sometimes, like, a name and passing, but nothing like, oh, you should really watch this movie. It's really good. Edwin? All right, my background is I knew nothing about this movie until someone was like, hey, Edwin, you want to watch this movie for the podcast? And I was like, sure. Oh, wow. That was me. <laughs> you hadn't even heard of it. Maybe once or twice, but, you know. Okay. There there might be a reason that we're going to talk about why this mm-hmm. one isn't talked about as right. other Ghibli movies are. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Now, Andrew, I know that you're not a massive Ghibli fan, but you're, I mean, you like the film, so mm-hmm. was there a specific reason why you hadn't watched this one yet? Uh, no. I mean, mm-hmm. just probably, <laughs> I, again, I'll, I'll go back to saying that uh, it was never something that was, you know, within the zeitgeist, I should say. Mm. And uh, mm-hmm. something that uh, nobody ever came up to me and said, you need to watch the Secret World of Arietti, you know? You just need to watch that film. It's great. I'm pretty sure I made you watch Spirited Away on my iPod Classic. I don't remember that, but I don't doubt that it's... Oh, my God. Um, Andrew, will you watch anything if someone tells you to watch it? I mean, within reason. Okay. Good to know. I guess for me, this was the one, this is the one Ghibli film that I hadn't watched yet, um, other than Grave of the Fireflies, which I still refuse. I don't want to touch it. I just don't. But when we had the opportunity to kind of like get these digital copies and rewatch everything, thank you, Shout Factory. Um, I jumped on it because it was um, mostly an accessibility issue. Like before G Kids acquired the Ghibli catalog, the Disney Blu-rays were expensive. There was nowhere to stream them. Um, it, yeah, mostly was just an accessibility thing. So I was really excited to be able to check it out finally. So it seems like I'm probably the one that has the the deepest background with this film, if you will, because I actually got the chance to go see it in theaters in 2012, I believe, because it uh, came out in 2010 in Japan and two years later came over to the states and uh i got to see it in its first run in theaters when you know we we kind of take for granted well certainly not at the present moment during covid and all that stuff but uh you know anime anime films in theaters are kind of like commonplace nowadays like you even see some just like very strange like esoteric anime films that would never show up in u.s theaters even 10 years ago get like a week a week of uh, play in, in U.S. theaters now. Maybe not in every city, but in a lot of major cities. But that kind of wasn't the case back in 2012 before, like, the Dragon Ball movies came out and really normalized anime movies in theaters. Um, so going to see... Um, mm-hmm. Getting to see Secret World of Arietti in theaters is, like, my first theatrical anime experience was, like... That in of itself is, like, something that I will always remember and always cherish... Uh, even if, even at the time, I didn't think the movie was that awesome, and still maybe kind of don't, even though that sounds a little harsh, but we can get into that later. Um, but yeah, it, it'll always hold a special place in my heart for being like, yes, this was my first theatrical experience, getting to see a Ghibli film on the big screen. And since then, I've gone to like Ghibli fests and stuff, but those are so common now. Those They feel like they happen every year. but They do happen every year. Yeah, exactly. But back in 2012, it felt like a real novelty Mm -hmm. and something very special. So, Andrew, tell us what this movie's about, why don't you? So, Secret World of Arietti is about a a family of people who live under the floor of big people. Um, Yes. it, It generally, that's pretty much it. But everything you've said is true. I, I, I know <laughs> yes. everything that I said is true. I agree. Thank yes, you. Yes. Um, so this family, Arietti, her mom and her dad, they are borrowers. They are these little people that 
don't steal things they borrow things from the big people just to get by and to survive uh, so much like the, the the book which we have uh, gone into a little bit early earlier Arietti, her mom and her dad are just trying to sort of survive in this little quaint little home that they've made underneath this big house their existence to these people as far as to the humans the beans human beans which is funny because bean implies something small so it's weird that they call the humans who are very large beans i don't know that that's that struck me as weird well it's because humans are bean shaped (laughs) Mm-hmm. I guess so. Humans are being shaped. They live underneath. They live underneath the house of <laughs> Fall Guys characters. So their existence to the human beings is pretty much. They go unnoticed, right? So they're not supposed to be seen, not supposed to be discovered. Blah blah blah. A bunch of the movie is based around how beans are dangerous. You need to avoid them because they will capture you and torture you and ruin your life, and they'll eat you. Um, they'll eat so you. This is Studio Ghibli's Attack on Titan. Yeah, if we're if we're being honest. Uh, Essentially, so this twelve-year-old boy named Sho or Sean in the English dub, which was kind of weird. Why didn't they just stay with the Japanese? They gotta, name? they gotta Romanize it. Yeah, exactly. He is a he is a sickly <laughs> human being boy that comes to um, this his aunt's house in the countryside to heal his heart condition that he has because he's he wanted to see the country road (laughs) goes to his aunt's place and is there to sort of heal his heart and then one day he sees arietti out in the backyard and then you know she thinks that she's like she comes back home she's like i don't think he saw me whatever it's okay and then sort of the whole story progresses and it sort of becomes this um I wouldn't call it a relationship, as in a romantic relationship between the two. I mean, there's some tones of that, but it's it's not over. No. I remember looking at Austin when some of that was going on, and I was just like, well, they can't fall in love. It's just not going to work. He'll just eat her afterwards. Yeah, I mean, okay. As the movie progresses, uh, Sho or Sean and Arietti uh, sort of have a fr- friendly relationship. And... The main, protagon- uh, main protagonist is Arietti. The main antagonist is this character called Haru. She's like the maid of the house and I guess gets blamed when cubes of sugar are missing. So she hates the little people. That character reminded me of that classic Looney Tunes sketch where the, uh, the construction worker finds the singing frog. And like wants to <laughs> yes. wants to like capitalize on the singing frog, and she gave me that very much that kind of vibe. Where yeah, and we can get into this a little bit later with some of the issues of the film. But whenever she, uh, spoiler alert, we we do lots of spoilers on this on this podcast. But um, whenever she captures Arietti's mom, I'm just like, and what what's your goal here? Is your mm-hmm. goal to just bring wrath upon the little people because that kind of makes you a jerk uh if you're doing it for no reason if you're doing it for some sort of monetary value or fame or whatever at least that's kind of an understandable motivation i mean you're still Mm -hmm. a jerk but still um 
So I, I very much struggled with the motivation. She was trying to prove to people that she wasn't crazy. I guess. But then what afterwards? Like, you know, because they're going to get in the newspaper or whatever. And then scientists and reporters are going to be everywhere. So did she not think this through? Probably not. No, she did not think. <laughs> no. So the story just kind of uh, bounces off back and forth between um, Ariete and Sean interacting in various ways. And then once uh, Haru discovers that that these little people exist, she sort of goes manic and causes uh, bad things to happen for Ariete's family. And then Ariete's father says, like, we have to move then at the end of the film they, they kind of move away and the show and Ariadne have this heartwarming moment where she's like don't don't die from your heart and Sean was like I won't and then he said I never saw her again but I was glad when I heard that the neighbors down the street began missing cubes of sugar beautiful why does he sound like a six-year-old man because he survived his heart condition and aged that's right that's why he's 60 years old but Mm -hmm. uh in terms of general plot that's pretty much it it's not a very complex movie in terms of plot and story the main focus of the film really is sort of on the the world that it builds and which is very very cool i think that's a really big plus side of this movie is that the 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 sort the miniature world that arietti and her family are in is really the star of the movie because it's really 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 neat mm-hmm. world it's very creative and, and all Ghibli films are grandiose in their own ways but this is very sort of like focused on being like illustrating the ordinary i'll call it and shrinking everything down to size that makes it just really a really interesting world and i think that's one of the biggest strengths of the film yeah and you um kind of have to put some thought into it because it's like okay well we can take a matchbox and obviously size it down or whatever well a matchbox is already small so weird example but like you can take a matchbox fine we know what we do with it as like actual human beings but when you put it into the world of something like the Mm -hmm. borrowers it's takes on a completely different meaning like Mm -hmm. what can they use it for like i would think a bed or a storage drawer or something like that um so i think there's a lot of complex thought too that goes into like you said the miniature miniatureness of arietti's world um Mm -hmm. to make it feel more realistic i think that's the real shining aspect of this film is is I, I think it leaves a lot to be desired in the narrative department and somewhat in the character department. But if you're talking about sheer aesthetic presentation and layout and conceptual design for the way that the borrower's world works and the way that their world is a reflection and an interpretation of the human world is very fascinating and i think very well realized yeah even though there are a few things that i was very curious about because you know like for example they sit down and they use like like cups and spoons and you know things like that that would have to be extremely small and yet the film kind of goes out of its way to tell you that the dollhouse that they encounter 
they make a point to never take anything from it. And I'm like, well, then where did they get the teeny tiny spoons? I don't know. Did the dad make them in his kiln? I was just going to assume that the dad made them. The dad is very talented. They show that he, he was working on many different contraptions. And for me, I think the most impressive thing was that he says that they even use their electricity. How do they do that? I don't know. It seems like he... Uh... I was just going to say, I was wondering that too, when he was going around with that little light. Um, it looks like... It's going to be a very weird comparison, but you know, like a light up mm-hmm. Halloween pumpkin decor, the the little light that goes in one of those. It looks like that's what he was using as his flashlight. Um, but you're right, Edwin. It's like, where is he getting yeah. the electricity for that? Yeah. I mean, I guess they can wire. Yeah, they're it. like rats. They chew on the cords and like hardwire it. <laughs> because Stop. otherwise, I was going to say Duracell doesn't make like little watch batteries that small. You know about, you know, yeah. like the hearing aid batteries. Uh, those are fairly small. Yeah, they're pretty small. Um, are they this is actually Yeah. There, there's, there's a moment in the film Nine, which is a film like almost no one has seen, where they kind of do that <laughs> mm-hmm. scene. It's like a, they use. It's like there. It's also a movie about really teeny tiny people doing stuff in the big human world. And there's a scene where the main character takes like an old light bulb and puts it on top of a little watch battery and it lights up that way so that's probably what they were gonna what they were trying to imply there and there's also that one scene wherever he's fixing it and he's like Mm -hmm. soldering a little piece to it if you guys remember that it was very brief Mm -hmm. but there is a moment where he's like repairing it yeah yeah um and that was another interesting detail it's like the fact that the animators decided that there was going to be a very distinct difference between the water physics at the human level versus at the borrower level mm-hmm. because the the drops of water are so much bigger depending on whether we're looking at a scene with a borrower or with a human. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was one of the things of the animation design that really sold the fact that like, yes, these people are like just a few centimeters tall. Yeah. I think that was really like, it was really cool to see that like, you know, like even when they're like pouring water out of a, kettle right it comes right. out in a drop because it's mm-hmm. very small yeah. it comes out in a drop the little you know, tea kettle like yes stuff like works differently mm-hmm. when you're very small as opposed to if you're right human sized the entirety of the time i was watching it i was just thinking about how much mm-hmm. i wanted to live in that little house they cobbled together because everything was so lush and green and colorful it reminded me of um you know when sophie sees Hal's room for the first time and it's all just like a mishmash of just random things from everywhere it looked like a yeah lot it of kind them. of reminded me you know going back to Howl's moving castle like the the intricacy of the design reminded me a lot of both sophie's hat shop and like were you were ta- in in how were you talking about like his bedroom or are you talking about like the foyer of the castle Oh, his bedroom when he's having his temper tantrum about being ugly. Right. Yeah. But it, but it also had this <laughs> this hints of you know you know his his grand overly detailed bedroom, especially in the scene where they go into the dollhouse that was specifically crafted for them, though they did not know about that. So I, again, it just falls pretty perfectly in the lineage of like be- absolutely gorgeous, unique Ghibli set design.
spent some time talking about things we did enjoy about the film. How about some things that we did not enjoy about the film? Personally, for me, I feel like the movie is like building up, like, you know, the climax of the movie. It, there's not really much of anything. It just happens to be like one storyline where, you know, it's just one giant movie that's world building to me. There's nothing to be worried about except for that one scene where the mom gets kidnapped. Mm-hmm. I would say that that's probably kind of a shared criticism that I have too. Um, especially towards the end when Ariadne's leaving and she's saying bye to Sean. It's just like, do I care about this? Am I supposed to care about this? Um, should I feel more emotional over this? Like, I guess I would say that even though they were supposed to sort of be friends, there was nothing really developed other than him leaving, like, a sugar cube and a flower for her. And, I mean, he did save her, so I can kind of understand that. But that scene that should have been a climax scene just kind of fell flat for me. Um, and I feel if more thought had been put into it, it most definitely could have been a lot more emotional than it was. Oh, I felt, I was going to say it felt like a cop-out where they didn't want to show anything afterwards. Yeah, and I wonder if that's because, like, the series is five books long, um, and I know with a movie they could only go into so much, and... I don't think they had it in mind to make, like, five separate Ariadne movies, even though that would be kind of cool. Um, so I think I think it was just a time constraints thing, and I could not tell you how well it follows the original source material other than Ariadne and her family being named the same in the book and the movie. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like there was not a lot of buildup to an emotional payoff, and that is what I've come to expect out of Ghibli movies, so that's where this one kind of fell flat for me. Runtime is like an hour and a half, mm-hmm. something like that. And um, he talked about like it being sort of an hour and 15 world building. But I mean, like even that, I mean, there wasn't a ton of uh, insight into sort of like what these people, what the borrowers are. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, why are they there? Were there more at one point? I mean, we get hints of that. That's like, well, there's very few of us left. You know, it's like we get hints about like a little bit of backstory that would kind of provide uh, a little bit more context. Like there was there at one point, like a civilization of tiny people and that's gone now somehow. Is that why that they have these, you know, small (laughs) dishes because like artisans made them? Oh, that's really dark. (laughs) You know, I I mean, when you die, I borrow your things. I mean, I guess you could do a post-apocalyptic reading of the secret world of Arietti and you would probably be onto something. Yeah. I I don't, I, okay. I don't like using the word post-apocalyptic because that genre (laughs) has, I have a lot of problems with that genre, but, uh, like something a little bit more descriptive about what exactly the borrowers are, why are it's because it seems like whenever they talk about, uh, like whenever the dad and the mom and Ariadne sort of talk about like what they are, they talk about like the, we don't know if there's any borrowers left, you know, it's like, what, right. what does that mean? You know, 
we don't get anything beyond sort of just a passing mention of a borrower tribe. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what was the, what was the guy's name that they left with? I forgot. He was like, he he represented like a tribal borrower. Yeah, Strider. Something Slider, like that. Strider. Strider. It, it it may as well it may as well have been Strider. It may as well have <laughs> Spiller. been Spiller. 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 That's it. Yeah, that's the one. Ben Benjamin Spiller. Um. So. You know, it was kind of like that was probably my biggest thing that uh, really could have been expounded upon a little bit more. Would have made the movie a little bit more interesting to me. Um, That's probably my biggest issue, I think. For sure. I just didn't just there just wasn't quite enough for me to see more into this universe that I think is really like. If if I had to sort of provide a diagnosis for why this film seems like so much weaker compared to the rest of the Ghibli catalog. I think it kind of goes back to what Yonabayashi said in that interview where he said, like, I think a director needs to have something to say whenever they make a movie. And I don't really feel like I have anything to say. And I think, you know, he ended up making a very competent film. I think you take this outside of the context of Ghibli and you show it to somebody and they're probably going to think, wow, this is really good. And I, I also think, you know, in, in that in that context, it is a pretty incredible film. I mean, it has some really creative, amazing sequences, absolutely beautiful design, as we touched on before, but it doesn't really have anything to say i don't think i don't really think because like if you watch a miyazaki film or a takahata film you can tell that they're coming to each one of their stories with like a very specific message or theme that they want to convey and this it just feels kind of absent here or a little bit phoned in maybe and -hmm. i think that might be partially because of i mean i don't I don't know necessarily. It might be partially because of just Yonabayashi's, you know, personal personality and, you know, what he sees value in. And it also might just be a little bit of um, just honest anxiety of feeling like, you know, he's a first time director being told that he has to make a major motion picture for the most well-known animation studio in Japan. Like that, that, that was probably very scary with, you know, Miyazaki, you know, in his shadow behind mm-hmm. him, um, as well as Suzuki and um, Takahata. And not only that, there's also the fact that it's an adaptation of a very famous work, and he has to make sure that this movie is faithful to it as it's well. It's a major yeah. undertaking, and I think, you know, considering all of that, he does a fairly good job, but, you know, it, it just feels it just feels kind of empty. And I think maybe that came from a sense of, him feeling like maybe he couldn't take take many risks, which this film is incredibly safe. Like it's a very safe film. I, I would definitely characterize mm-hmm. it like that. Yeah, there's no moral of the story. You know, there's no like uh, underlying theme about growing up. There's no underlying theme about uh, getting old. There's no underlying theme about. The, I think the sorry. theme is very abstract about like you should not fear what you don't understand or something like that or just because Mm -hmm. people are small judgment of others yeah or like just because people are small or different than you doesn't mean that they're like insignificant or whatever and that that metaphor is a little bit too on the nose considering what we're talking about but but yeah it doesn't really it's like 
it doesn't it, it may be there but it has no bite mm-hmm. yeah i agree with that 100 percent. yeah and i feel like most directors especially when it's their first film unless they're extremely headstrong or just very egotistical and like in what they want to present to the world i think a lot of them do play it safe um like you had mentioned and the more i hear you guys talk about this the more i kind of see like oh yeah that's that's actually a really good point it is a safe movie and you know maybe there wasn't that much to say and can i uh, add a caveat which is i really like this movie oh yeah I thought that it was i thought that it was like like i i really really think that uh but I mean, I'm easy to please. <laughs> I think that I think that a world, an interesting world, can carry a film. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, this, it, it, I, I'm I'm of two minds, which is, I like really good characters, but I also like really cool worlds. Yeah. And I think that this is a good movie for yeah. kids too. Oh or, yeah. Mm-hmm. If, yeah. If you want a baby's first Ghibli movie, it's like this and Kiki's Aww, for me. Yeah. And not only that, it could get someone interested in the source material. Yeah. Because, you know, with the movie not explaining everything mm-hmm. that we want to know, you know, with all the questions of where they're coming from and whatnot, maybe they explain it in the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And more more Ghibli films are based on books, I think, than people realize. Yeah. Like Kiki, mm-hmm. Kiki has like 12 books. <laughs> um, and then Howl's Moving Castle has two or three books. And um, so it's a lot of literature based things that they've yeah. picked up to retell which is always very exciting. I guess we haven't talked too much about Arietti herself, but I mean she is a very I mean you're talking about, you know, what what kids can enjoy from this film and ultimately it, it is for, you know, an audience of of kids and families. I mean, she's a very, you know, excellent role model character. I mean, she shows curiosity, yeah. she shows uh toughness she shows weakness as well she's not just entirely tough um she shows you know just a a wide range of emotions and that's of course that's always great to see whenever whenever characters are allowed to be complex yeah Yeah, and it's very realistic too which i think is extremely important like i know she's what 14 but i think her emotions are very honed in for um a 14 year old because she just had her birthday too so she's like just 14 but it's also refreshing to see her like like she does get teary she does cry but she doesn't have this whole like woe is me moment that i feel like i've seen a lot of characters in she's able to assume responsibility as well yes she's able to admit that she's the reason that they have to move right and when that happened i was like oh my god how are you so self-aware what in the world (laughs) I think she kind of understands the harshness of the reality that she lives in, which, I mean, sucks and you hate to see it. But I think it does take a level of maturity to be able to be like, you know what? I can't have what I want. You know, I can't. There are sacrifices that I have to make. And and sometimes, you know, making those sacrifices open up new doors and new possibilities, because at the end of the film, we do see that, you know, they go on. They go on to live another life. But it just sort of has this kind of wet rag of like the inevitable sort of thrown on top of it of like and this just made me think of a weird thing it's like kind of a little uh, cynical is too harsh of a word but it's it's kind of a downer ending if you think about it because it essentially says that like there can't be a reconciliation between the borrowers and the humans even though i i think there could have very easily been because the aunt 
yeah, the aunt and the little boy knew that the borrowers were a thing. And was it his grandfather? Mm -hmm. Yeah, his grandfather had built the whole dollhouse for him. So it's like... It was his father. Was it his... Okay, sorry. It was his father. Where it was just like, they easily could have lived in this world. They just chose not to, which is weird. And I don't know what they were trying to say with that, really. It was... Yeah, it was his mother's father. So yes, it was his grandfather. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, some sometimes even when conditions are good, things don't work out, and that is a very real thing that happens. So That's I mean, fair. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not gonna hang my hat solely on that, but it is an interesting thing to think about. They should have just signed a peace treaty. <laughs> no human beings allowed. Give the human beings right. the dollhouse, and we'll keep the rest of it. All right, so I think we should start wrapping things up with our conversation since I have plenty of questions to go ahead and read off here. So if you guys are ready for those, let's Sounds do it. Sounds good. We always appreciate listener yeah. questions. So thank you guys for submitting them. But not you, Basil. Stop it, Basil. <laughs> um, all right, so the first one comes from at Sharkberry Art over on Twitter. And he says, while I do love this movie, I find myself almost forgetting that it's part of the greater Ghibli film lineage. Do any of you guys also feel a distinct departure between this film and the ones surrounding it? Uh, no, I don't feel like it's a distinct departure, really. Uh, I think that uh, it it does its thing, and uh, it doesn't feel all too different from uh, other Ghibli films in terms of, in terms of like setting, in terms of uh, characters. Really, uh, I don't. I think that it is very. I mean, we've talked about this already. It's very safe. Um, it's, it's not very thought provoking. It's not very deep emotionally. It's not overly happy. So I think that, uh, sort of not standing out and being safe is why that it, you can sometimes forget that it's part of that lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's different from the other Ghibli films and it comes down with it having a different director, you know, this director for the most part was playing that safe. So. So the thing about this movie is that it doesn't stand out compared to the other Ghibli movies. And when you watch the movie, you can tell. Yeah, I would kind of agree with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't I don't think it's necessarily a radical departure from the Ghibli canon, if you will. Even though that's kind of... I don't know if I necessarily buy that, even though they do have a lot of through lines. But it just kind of kind of like what i said earlier it feels just a little phoned in like it was it feels like content it feels like ghibli content but it's not i don't i don't mean for this to sound so mean but it's like it's not anything special even though that sounds more harsh than i need mean for it to it's like what it's like if they had all of the, these ideas that make a ghibli film stuck them in the easy bake oven and spat out this movie mm-hmm. Thank you for reminding me how much I hate the word content. <laughs> um, in To this question, though, I would personally say no, but there are some Ghibli movies I definitely feel this way about. Like, Only Yesterday, for instance, being one of those, it always hits later that it is a Ghibli film. Um, but I don't know. Arietti is whimsical enough, I think, to fit in and not really stand apart too much from anything else, but interesting answers on this one yeah and i guess it really just depends on how much stock you put in like ghibli's identity being inextricably connected to miyazaki's personal style because like whimsy yeah the whimsy i mean it it, this movie is definitely kind of by by its own nature whimsical but it's not again it, it just doesn't have much 
to say. And, you know, like Takahata's films are extremely different from Miyazaki's, but he always has something to say as well. All right. Good answers. So the next one comes from our fellow cohort, Bill. Hi, Bill. And we already kind of answered this one, but um, he asks, Arietti is based off the classic children's book, The Borrowers by Mary Norton. Did you ever read this book as a child, watch the cartoon, or for Edwin, see the live-action John Goodman movie from the 90s? I haven't, but, Bill, I'm going to give you this offer. If you want to do a podcast with me based off the 1997 (laughs) movie with John Goodman, the offer stands. It has to be a double feature with Speed Racer. Okay. So, um, I guess I'm the only one that's read the book, so... Yeah, I can't read. Shrug. Nerd. (laughs) Go outside and read a book. (laughs) So the next set of questions comes from our favorite hype man, Basil. Um, And he's got quite a few, so let's just break it down one by one. Basil asks, how do you feel about the director, Hiramasa Yonebayashi? I think his best is yet to come. Yeah, I, this is kind of going into the second question, but I really enjoyed Mary and the Witch's Flower. I thought it was really fun. Um, And I really loved when Marnie was there or as I like to call it is it gay or is it grandma <laughs> um <laughs> that's the official title I yeah. that exactly that film I remember where I was what I was doing when I watched that movie and it was in this little art house theater that I was working at at the time and I was talking about how much I love Ghibli movies and the lady that owned it was just like do you want to take a two-hour break and go watch it? <laughs> I was like, yes, yes, I do. I can uh, I can echo what uh, Austin was saying about uh, as best is yet to come, because I don't I don't know what ex- exactly his timeline has been. I'm guessing that uh, he directed Arietty first, then when Marnie was there, and then Mary and the Witch's Correct. Flower. Is yes, that right? and then Modest Heroes. Uh, and then uh, I'm I, I have not seen Modest Heroes, so. Uh, just based on just based on uh, the three films that I have seen of his, they um, I would say that uh, when Marnie was there is the best. Mary and the Witch's Flower is good. I, I, I like that movie uh, also, and I like Arietti as well. I think I think that the that both both Mary and the Witch's Flower and Arietti sit kind of in the same stratosphere. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, when Marnie was there is, is, is his is strongest film, film I think so far. Definitely, so, Edwin. I have no thoughts. I've only seen this movie. Okay. No thoughts. Head empty. All right. Uh, Basil also asks, what kind of movies would you like to see him tackle next? Hmm. I just want him to, I, I want him to make a film that he's passionate about because I think whenever you have passion, that's when your best art comes through. So I, I, I certainly hope mm-hmm. that he is using the fact that he has his own studio now to really pursue those passion projects of his. And with his, Ghibli pedigree and you know making you know already pretty pretty well known and successful films in his own right through his own brand I think he can kind of do whatever he'd like to do so I just hope that that that's what he does uh this is very selfish a space movie (laughs) why not why not my answer is the opposite of Austin's. I want him to continue making the rest of the borrowed books into movies. I like it. <laughs> I need a part two, three. Oh, yes. Like a spinoff. Four more movies to make. And then what collection of short stories? Arietti, Arietti, Beyond Thunderdome, Arietti, Fury Road. <laughs> uh, there's one called like The Borrowers Avenged. Whoa. So I can't wait to see what he does with Whoa, that. Boy. Part of the MCU. Yeah. 
Can I change my answer? I want. I, I like Edwin's. Yeah, unanimously vote Edwin's mm-hmm. answer. I concur. Um. All right. So the next one is: What other British kids' books would you like to see adapted into anime? And I say anything. Roll doll. Anything. Just give it to me. I only know two British books. Uh, Winnie the Pooh. Pat no, I didn't even know those were British. I was oh. gonna say I was gonna say the Jungle Book and Oliver Twist. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I know. I had to um, Google British books, and I was like, these are lame. <laughs> so let's not let's not do any British adaptations. Let's do some American adaptations. I'm gonna show my pro. I'm gonna show my pro Charles Dickens bias and say I really wanted a high budget, lush incredible epic adaptation of a christmas carol as if we don't have enough adaptations of christmas carol already i want more i crave more but this has to be kind of spooky uh i need a british adaptation of junji ito's a christmas Mm -hmm. carol listen (laughs) yes um Uh, can i uh, all right i got one oh go ahead Um, not a children's book but uh uh, richard the third i think that would be cool more shakespeare yeah 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 um everyone go watch blast of the tempest and call it a day um anyway so basil also asks do you think disney plus could use an original anime and why should it be bed knobs and broomsticks i mean angela lansbury is still alive so they could easily do it yeah i think if they adapted the princess manga um all the little like spin-off disney princess mangas and um kilala princess that would be super cute and i would be all for it and also it's extremely it's also extremely marketable because it's already characters that people are familiar with it's just a different medium and different stories about this question because are we talking about Stuart Little? Um, Just skip that. Basil says who would win in a fight? No, this is this is important. We're going to assume that he means Stuart Little. So who would win in a fight? The borrowers or the Littles? The Littles because most of them are human beings. Yeah, that's what I would that's what I would say. <laughs> I mean, they're big. They're Let huge. But why fight? Right. Oh, no, no, wait. Wait, it's not Stuart Little at all. We're, talk- we're not talking it's about not- you, Lori. It's not Stuart Little at all. There is a cartoon from 1983 called The Littles, but we're going to stop here and assume that Arietti and Stuart Little are fighting to the death and Arietti wins. <laughs> yeah, she wins. Well, who has a car? Checkmate. <laughs> okay, that's valid. <laughs> okay, this is now my whole favorite part of this entire, entire episode here. Anyway, the next one, and I love it, is what would you do if you were a tiny person, especially if you were Tobias? I'd still get a cute cat. I think I would pet a snail and also attempt to tame a snail like a wild stallion. <laughs> I love this idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've already done this. Uh, there's a video game called Grounded that uh, very much does this kind of thing. Uh, 
Yeah, and there's a movie that already did yeah. it. Honey, I Shrunk the That's Kids. That too. Um, <laughs> I would probably um, live in the pantry and just eat all of my favorite foods. Small. Lol. You already do that. But you'd have more of them because you're so small. But I, but I would, <laughs> I wouldn't be wanting for much now, would I? Because I'd be tiny. I would get Legos and put them in front of people's beds so when they get up they have to step on them man i would be really sad because i couldn't play video games anymore yeah you can there's a game called hamster ball hamster ball 2 the shrekening i'm gonna be cutting most of this out anyway please leave the bit about Stuart little and the littles and my discovery of the littles being a 1983 cartoon and not the mouse (laughs) also keep my part with the legos um, I, in good faith, cannot read this next question, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Even if he was a tiny person, would Tobias still be a giant slab of glistening man meat? Yes. All right, moving on. What other films would we like to see Eleven Arts slash G-Kids pick up? Um, my answer is all 17 Pretty Cure movies. Thank you. I would like to see them dabble in some of that old, like, super old school Toei children's films. I would like to see those made available. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just appreciate G-Kids for getting, like, the really cool new stuff out. Like, the fact that they are basically the U.S. home for the Masaki Yuasa catalog is just a blessing. And really, really yeah. everything G-Kids puts out, I am more than thrilled with. So whatever they think is good, mm-hmm. keep putting it out. Um, it's so are they the uh, Ghibli kids now? I mean, yeah, I guess you could call them. The G stands for Ghibli. I mean, <laughs> could you imagine? But no. Yes, um, that was the joke. But yeah, I mean, G Kids puts out so much quality content, and I just want them to keep doing that. Um, as far as like films in the backlog, one film specifically that I would really like for them to get is a movie I haven't seen yet. It was, um, I, I think, an early 2010s film written by Mario Kata called Anthem of the Heart, and I haven't seen it yet. And that totally seems like a like a G kids pickup. So if if I had to pick one thing, mm-hmm. that would be that would be my pick. Did they um did they ever put out I Want to Eat Your Pancreas? Did that ever get a home video release? It yeah. did, but it was an Aniplex release. So of course, you know, I want them to jack it from uh for Aniplex and, and put it out on their own label. Alright, and Basil's last question is what was it like watching anime in theaters? I've forgotten. Glorious. Well, Considering, yes, glorious, but considering the last thing I saw in theaters was weathering with you. Won't, won't. <laughs> I mean, you're the lucky one. The last thing I watched in theaters was Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> Somehow I feel like that was a better time. You know, watching uh, weathering with you in theaters is, I think, probably the best way to watch it. Because, I mean, I don't know if I would have enjoyed it in the amount that I did enjoy it had I watched it at home. Because it's so pretty that watching it on the big screen was, you know, very nice to see, you know, independent of how I feel about the film. Which, if you want to figure out how Tori and I both felt about that movie, you can go back and listen to our podcast about it.
Well, my favorite question is, what was everyone's favorite scene from the movie? Oh, I'd say that the most striking scene in terms of animation was when the bird flew through the uh, flew through the window. Oh yeah. And, uh, that was like really like it, it was actually like so much was going on on the screen that it was kind of like whoa time out can i can i look at a still of this please and <laughs> can you just slow it down for a few frames i want to look at this because it's super awesome and super pretty mm-hmm. so actually yep i'm saying that so if i had to pick what i think is my okay so i think my favorite one of my favorite scenes is well the whole sequence of her going out to borrow for the first time with her dad i think is a lovely scene yeah yeah. Um, but in terms of the one that I think is the most iconic and the one that sticks out in my mind the most is whenever she, like right before that, whenever she's in her bedroom and she's changing clothes to get to like go out and be a borrower for the first time and she pulls her hair up and puts it in that big iconic clip on her head. I think that's might be the most iconic scene. Like whenever I'm thinking of this movie like mm-hmm. years from now, that's probably the scene that will come into my mind because it basically is like, you know, we, we see that, you know, even even if Arietti the film doesn't really have that sort of celebrity status, I think Arietti as a character design is very well recognizable. I think probably more people recognize that character than they do than than people that have maybe seen the film. Um, so I think that's probably the most iconic. Uh, for me, my, the most memorable scene was when Arietti was going up to show telling him that because of her um being seen that they have to move out and that's when um that's when show saw Ariadne for the first time mm-hmm. and he was he was like explaining that how the borrowers are a doomed species but she's out there trying to prove them wrong so she's trying to show yeah even though i'm small and not not as big or useful as you are i can still do my own thing Mm-hmm. That's a great I, point, I think yeah. for me, if I were to look back to this movie, that'll be the scene that I remember. Yeah. Just because of how emotionally impactful it was. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good, I'd say probably probably that scene is kind of the emotional core of the film. Because it, it is mm-hmm. also like a cathartic moment too, because that's the first time that Arietti actually allows show to like see her. I guess for me, um, kind of like you were saying, the scene where her and her dad, she goes to borrow for the first time, but it shows the kitchen. It kind of sets up the kitchen like a horror movie, yeah. sort of. I was like, oh, that's cool. I That, that caters to me specifically. This movie, <laughs> this movie has a lot of great scenes, but for some reason that one was kind of the one that stuck with me because it made me laugh a little bit. You know, Edwin mentioned the dark abyss at the beginning of the podcast, and that's what he was referring to is that kitchen at nighttime. It's just the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe we're going to end this podcast without bringing up that Tom Holland's film debut was with this movie. That is a good point. Yeah. We went this whole time without mentioning that. Yeah. It is. It is Tom Holland, old, old Spidey's, you know, um, acting debut. And which is, which is also interesting because for some reason there are two English dubs of this movie. There's an American English dub and a Japanese English dub. Uh, wait no that's stupid a american english dub (laughs) and a british english dub. british that's what i meant to say um 
Which, I mean, I guess makes sense considering the source material. Yeah. I guess they wanted to, like, make it more authentic. Yeah. yeah, it totally... I still can't get over that Will Ornett is hot <laughs> in the movie. Oh, yeah. I hear yeah. his voice, and I'm like, I just think of Arrested Development. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. But it, but as soon as, you, um, as soon as you make that connection, though, you can absolutely hear it, even though yep, he doesn't yep. speak a whole lot in the movie. It's like a Batman. Um, yeah. Yes, and Carol Burnett as um, Hara was just incredible. Yes. We didn't talk about the voice cast at all, seriously. No, no. So I mean, it is. I guess um, it is worth touching. Which is on. fine. Um, we can. And there is one interesting distinction between the American dub and the British dub is that for some reason they Americanized the names of the characters in the American dub, but they left mm-hmm. the original Japanese characters names in the british dub which is very peculiar to me I, I i do wonder what the rationale was behind that but we'd have to ask disney so of course we'll never know oh goodness and it's also important to mention that in the uk dub uh the voice of arietti is saoirse ronan who oh, yeah. is oh, yeah. from uh the grand budapest hotel fame my favorite and anime. other things my favorite anime is great yeah um and other yeah and other things. <laughs> I'm not sure what else she's in. I can't think of anything off the top Little of my head. Little Women. Lady Bird. Little Women. Yeah. Little Women. Yeah, so she's kind of a big star now. And she was uh, she was in this movie. Mm-hmm. St- Little Arietti. Star making film we got here. All right, guys. Any final thoughts before we start wrapping up? I think that if you, for whatever reason, have not seen The Secret World of Arietti and you do consider yourself a Studio Ghibli fan, definitely give it a give it a watch i don't think that you should go into it with super high expectations but i think whenever we look back at the career of um the director yonabayashi this will definitely mark a very important moment in his career and i think it is an important moment in studio ghibli as well because it's a one of their rare examples where they allow someone who uh, isn't Miyazaki or wasn't Takahata to take the realm, take the reins of doing a feature, and I think just for that alone, it is it is a curiosity and something that uh, that yeah. fans should pay attention to, and it's it's gorgeous. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a really really cool movie. Like I, I that was kind of my biggest takeaway from from finishing it was like wow that movie was really cool. I'm glad I watched it. So if you like cool movies you know this this movie is this movie is cool it might not be the best film thematic wise but (laughs) it's a really 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 cool movie yeah i think if you're trying to complete your ghibli watch through and you may or may not be familiar with the source material um it's very fun and i would recommend checking it out all right that does it for us we have a few important things to mention though before we wrap it up officially this was all brought to you in part by the fine folks over at shout factory who allowed us to rewatch these movies via their digital collection bundle um, that's available over on apple tv for your purchase and the bundle saves you 20 dollars whenever you buy it yay it's a prime deal It's a really great deal, actually. So you get a lot of movies for the price, which is always really fun. Thank you all for joining us for another episode. And remember, if you borrow it, you should return it. Especially when it comes to the library. All right, Edwin, where can everyone find you on the World Wide Web? Well, if you want to keep up with Third Impact Anime, you can follow us at 
at ti underscore anime and if you want to follow me and my video games escapades you can follow me at at midshelf gaming all right andrew where can everyone find you on the world wide web um i'm at toaster underscore mike on twitter uh i tweet about sports sometimes and anime sometimes but most of the time it's me retweeting Yotsuba things. So if you like uh, someone who retweets all the Yotsuba things that are on Twitter, uh, then <laughs> follow me. And sports. Oh, and some sports, yeah. And Yotsuba playing sports. And mm, sometimes, yeah, sure. All right, Austin, where can everyone find you on the World Wide Web? Yeah, you can find me most easily over on Twitter, and that's at BebopShock. You can also find the entire third impact anime catalog over on our website thirdimpactanime.com where we have a complete list of all of the episodes and articles that we've ever done including show notes for this episode and of course you can follow the brand on twitter at ti underscore anime just like what edwin says i've also been doing some sporadic video game streaming lately over on twitch.tv slash if for some ungodly, unholy reason you need me, just wait until the moon's full and rattle some borrower's goals around. <laughs> and I will be summoned. <laughs> for real though, you can follow me over at Waifu on Twitter. I'm usually screaming about what I'm reading, what I'm watching, or just into the void in general. As always, thanks for tuning in for another episode. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye!